0: This is your sporting life
1: with Peter Donegan.
0: And what a pleasure it is to have your company for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. And today we celebrate the life of a very special man in football. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, Dermot Brereton sat in the chair and I introduced him as Five Day, Five Night. And I said, well, that wouldn't apply to too many people. And he said, well, there's always Ayersy. And so I thought, why not? Gary Ayers, welcome.
1: Thank you very much, Pete. Great to be here. Good to see you, mate. Yeah, thank you, mate. Uh, How's life? Good. Good. Yeah, no complaints and certainly obviously my life revolves around what's going on at Port and of course this is year number 11 from a coaching perspective and just trying to enjoy that and things keep changing all the time as I'm sure you'd be aware and uh, life in general is going along pretty well. When you went to Port, did you ever think that you'd stay for longer than a decade? No, not at all. Not at all. I must actually thank Kevin Cheaty because Kevin rang me out of the blue way back in 2006 and I'd been doing a little bit of work with uh, Fox Footy back then and of course I was involved in a, a little bottle shop out at Middle Park and... Kevin had had an opening for a defensive coach and of course he thought well what are you doing so we struck up a connection there and obviously there was that great rivalry between the Hawks and the Bombers and uh, 2006 2007 had the pleasure of working with Kevin and then of course with the changeover of Kevin leaving and Matty Knights taking on the role there wasn't really an option to stay there at Essendon and there was an advertisement in the inside footy believe it or not for the Melbourne head coaching job and I thought I'd only be there possibly three or four years to be perfectly honest but of course uh, a premiership changed that and got the taste for it and here we are some 11 years later. So is it simply that,
0: the, the lure of football, the fact that you love football and love being involved and love the coaching
1: side of it that's kept you on there? Most definitely. It was funny after leaving Adelaide midway through 2004 when things finish a little bit sour I must admit you tend to look back and it does take the gloss off what you've actually been doing and loved it as a player obviously because that was 15 years and the coaching side of it is totally different to playing and I must admit going to work with Kevin probably reignited my passion and uh, obviously that Understanding that it is a terrific environment, and of course to give something back at grassroots footy, because we know the VFL competition is very much a uneven playing field with obviously the alignments etc. And someone had actually quoted that. Um, a VFL standalone team couldn't win a premiership Mm. so I think probably one of the things I've always enjoyed is the challenge and uh, we're able to do that with an undefeated season in 2011 which obviously you were part of yeah
0: uh, I remember it well and I think the line that I used when the siren sounded was they say nobody's perfect (laughs) but you were that year that was phenomenal
1: yeah, it was phenomenal. And even if you go back to the very start of that particular season, we played in four practice matches and were able to win every one of those as well. And then to keep building that momentum through the course of that season, and we kept on challenging the playing staff, and obviously the players were just unbelievable with their attitude. And as you would know better than most, they're all either full-time people who work at their jobs some have their own businesses you've then got part-time university students who work part-time to pay for their courses and then obviously there's full-time university students who do a little bit of footy on the side so for us to record a 21 and o season mm. it was one of the most enjoyable moments of my life I must admit and also to to look at what these players sacrifice and they train maybe six or seven hours a week compared to the likes of Geelong and now Essendon, Richmond, Collingwood who have got a lot of players who are 35 hours a week. It's an amazing story and uh, one that I'm so proud to be part of. When you've
0: come, Gary, from an AFL structure where you've got everything that you want and in particular from Adelaide where they had state-of-the-art everything and you come to Port Melbourne, must
1: have been a fair old difference. It certainly was, Pete. There was the old what would we say, we'd call it a container that had been made into an office, and I affectionately call it the Batcave, yes. so if anyone wants to see me, I'm generally in the Batcave. <laughs> there was no internet, we had to get wireless broadband, there was obviously a understanding that the club financially had been in enormous trouble. and. Peter Sultry used to talk a lot about how the club from 1999 through to obviously when we won that premiership had been thereabouts in an alignment. But in 2005, at the end of, made the decision to cut their ties with North Melbourne. And it was, you had to watch who was getting taped and who wasn't getting taped, how many footballs were available for the players. And it was really... Stripped right back in a manner that you thought if you were going to get anything you had to make sure that you truly valued the most important asset. And to me, that's the players. And I've always felt that as a coach, that the most important asset that we have as a club is our players. And when you look at the guys through that era, Ryan McMahon mentioned, Toby Pinwell, Chris Kane, Sam DeWire, John Baird, Sam Pleming, Stephen Brewer, Jared Dalton, I could just, Dean Galea, I could go on and on and on. They are unbelievable individuals in relation to not only the sacrifices they made, but what they did to keep Port Melbourne as a powerhouse over the last 11 years. One last word on Port
0: before we uh, broadly explore your football journey. Uh, You're the reigning premiership coach, but 2018 hasn't been easy for you. How's things down at Port at the moment?
1: Because you're a bit nomadic. Yeah, we are, Pete. We've uh, spent eight weeks on the road which is four practice games and obviously the first four games. They're amazing and resilient group. I thought last year when we won the Premiership, we weren't able to train on our home ground because there'd been a heavy downpour the first weekend of the finals in early September. So we were training out at uh, the old Camberwell footy ground on a Wednesday, and we're training at the Oakley Chargers, which is our TAC Cup affiliate on the Friday. And each game that we played was naturally a Sunday, so our program was Monday, Wednesday, Friday. If I could write a book, I think I would title it It Could Only Happen at Port. (laughs) (laughs) And that would be the best way to obviously describe what the players put up with but they never whinge they never moan and that's why it's been one of the most pleasing parts of my footballing career the last 11 years at Port. I'm just so proud of the players week in week out and the performance and the wonderful supporters that you get down there as well and they've done an enormous amount of work to keep Port Melbourne as I said before a powerhouse in the VFL And there's also the Borough Burgers as well (laughs) which is an added incentive for anyone
0: who hasn't had the Borough Burgers down there. Absolutely. You've missed some Thing in your life.
1: <laughs> well, I think they've actually made them a bit bigger these days, Pete. Oh, so have
0: they? Yeah, so you'll have to get down there and try one. I'd love to. Again. Yes, yeah, <laughs> I'd love to do that. Uh, take us back to where it all began,
1: Izzy, and Warrigal. Long time ago, Pete, as I touched on before, 40 years. I was a skinny little boy from Warrigal and I'd only played probably a dozen or so senior Latrobe Valley games as it was back then, the competition. And it was a really, really strong competition. So you had a lot of dairy farmers, market farmers, and there were people that were passionate about how football was played back in those days. Being in Hawthorne's zone, they had seen me play as a 16-year-old and wanted to sign me up on what they used to call match permits. So, at the time, they came and spoke to my father. My father thought at 16, I was probably a little bit too young. So, I ended up playing the season out at Warragul in 1977 and was invited to Hawthorne's pre-season of 77-78 was just in awe of the personnel that I was being involved in. There was Don Scott, there was Michael Tuck, there was Lee Matthews, there was Peter Knights, Calvin Moore, guys that you would watch your little colour TV and see them in finals and grand finals and now you are training with them. That was just absolutely mind-blowing. I got to the end of the pre-season and the club said, oh, we would like you to play in the under-19s and my father said there's not much sense if you're playing in the under-19s because you're playing against men in the local comp so for me as his advice would be you're better off playing against men than you are playing against kids basically so I went back to the, the farm and uh, Hawthorne were persistent, and after about eight or nine games, they said, Do you want to come down and uh, have a run in the reserves at Waverley? Because it made sense to come from Warrigal to Waverley, of course. Played against Richmond in the reserves. They said I did okay. And then Warrigal had a game on the Monday against uh, Maui. And I played on that Monday. So I played the Saturday in the reserves at Hawthorne, played on that Monday for Warrigal Seniors and then found myself at Hawthorne from that point on. And where did you find yourself positionally when you first broke into the team? Pretty tough, to be honest, because back at the country, I'd played as a centre-half forward. Well, I'm probably only six foot one and a little bit, I would have thought, and that wasn't big enough for a key position. So I was playing on the wing. I was playing in the centre. I was playing half forward. I was playing half back and even found myself at full forward at times and I was lucky enough to play six reserve games and then got a game against uh, the Bulldogs out at Witten Oval and had eight possessions I believe and uh, kicked three goals and uh, we won the game so and that was a bit of the I guess the embryonic time of my uh, period at Hawthorne until Alan Jeans came because no one really could find a position I guess that I was suitable in and I was okay in some positions, and but not really good in in a in I guess an area of the ground where I could potentially settle down, and that didn't happen until Alan Jeans came uh, in 1981, and I think his uh, quip was, "We'll put you in the back pocket because you can't play uh, any further back or go any further back." So. Very thankful for that start.
0: But he also came up with the expression that um, we use a lot in football these
1: days, and he, he spoke about you and said you were a good driver in heavy traffic. Yeah, it was amazing. He did mention that in an interview once, and of course, I guess it has been lucky from my point of view that it's actually something that does stick. But as you'd know, too, guys like Louis Richards used to call the footy, and of course, they'd come up with a lot of different nicknames, and there would be, I guess, comments made by coaches, and no doubt doing their homework they'd certainly have an opportunity at times to work that into the commentary or work that into the interviewing and um, I was very thankful for Alan because when my father died in 1980 on the family farm in a tractor accident I was only 19 and my father had been a local policeman and then working on his father's farm well of course Alan came in some 12 months later and Alan being a policeman he probably assumed a role that he never really knew which would have been a little bit like a father figure to me and certainly everything that he said and the advice that he gave me I was very very keen to use that and um, use him as a sounding board slash mentor when I actually became a coach later on. Any time that a child loses
0: a parent under tragic circumstances, it's difficult. But in particular, I guess, at that time, because you were about to embark on the next stage of your life and and a father is something
1: that you need to bounce off. And were you lost for a while there? Yeah, I was. And I would certainly say that I was doing things that a young guy would obviously do and hadn't really... that you've got to knuckle down and there is a possibility that you've got something that you're not too bad at, and of course with the help of certain people. So it took me quite a while. It made me grow up fairly quickly because, again, I was only 19. I'd left home since I was 17, and I just felt so terrible for my mum and my younger brother and two younger sisters who were actually on the farm at the time when it happened so I was actually in Melbourne and I got a phone call from my sister who was in Melbourne at the time too and you just couldn't believe it It, I remember driving up the local uh, road and of course coming onto the property and there's dad's car and you still think no this is not true it's Mm. it's not happening and your mind is just completely and utterly in a mess because you just can't comprehend it so the club were terrific at the time and and it did take me probably at least another 12 or 18 months to then really understand that you have got an opportunity and it was pointed out to me by Alan Jeans when he came to the footy club and I'd only played maybe 30 odd games by the time Alan had arrived and then after five years of battling away and doing what I did, Alan gave me some pretty good advice and of course I ended up going and playing another probably 240-odd games and was able to be part of a a wonderful era with Hawthorne. So it's just really crucial that you have someone in your corner who can give you opportunity and give you the time, I think.
0: And he was the father figure for so many of the players that you played with at the time as well. Gary, we'll take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about that fantastic era at Hawthorne when they were just about invincible. And if you didn't play in a grand final at the end of the year, there was something (laughs) wrong at that stage. Gary Ayers is my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Finn. Celebrating Lives, more with Ezzy after the break. Yeah! You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donigan. And what a pleasure it is for me to have Gary Ayers as my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life. Ezzy, we spoke about coming into that era at Hawthorne. It must have been just a remarkable time when you you talked about the awe that you felt when you looked around the room but as you began to form that bond with those footballers you realised that you were part of one of the great teams if not the
1: greatest team in history Yeah most definitely Pete and look my first year there in 78 was that both the seniors won the, the grand final slash premiership and of course the reserves played in the grand final but didn't actually win the premiership that year and we were a, a group of young kids so then you go from 78 nine eighty eighty one, which was very unique. Hawthorne didn't even participate in any finals. Mm. And then David Parkin left, Alan Jeans came and showed some signs in 81. But then in 82, we made the prelim. And there was a lot of that change. Older guys, Don Scott, John Hendry... Calvin Matthews had gone to Geelong. Barry Rowlings had gone to Richmond. So there was a fair changing of the guard. Alan Martello had gone to Richmond. So there were these young kids coming through the, the reserves as they were in those days and possibly even the under-19s. So, And then Alan, when he came to the club, he just had this group that was experienced enough but then still had to add some young players coming through the system and uh, Chris Mew, myself, John Kennedy Jr, Peter Schwab, Dermot came on the scene, Richard Loveridge so there was a lot of guys that all started similarly and then they were able to carry that through and when you think about the the standards I guess of what football can become our standards were always about yes be comfortable with what you're doing if you have success have some humility along the way but never accept that what you did last year was good enough and then I always say to people that premiership taste of success is something that you just want to have in your nostrils and in your in your blood and in the environment that you're in for such a long long time and they're able to keep the nucleus of the team together, but add Johnny Platten, Gary Bucanara, Jason Dunstall, Tony Hall, Darren Pritchard, Andy as Chris Langford came sort of around about 83, 84 from memory, Dean Anderson, Scott McGuinness. So there was some unbelievable recruiting, but also, too, the uniqueness was that everyone got on really, really well from what I certainly felt and we did, as you said, have this unique bond and it's a special, special thing and if people don't experience it, it's sometimes hard to get them to understand how unique it is and um, yeah, we were able to play in eight grand finals over nine years which we felt we were the best team. It wasn't being arrogant but it was the confidence we had. I knew what Dipper was going to do. I knew what Dermot was going to do. I knew what Chris Langford, Tucky... Peter Swab, John Kennedy. And when you play a lot together and do a lot of things together, you do become very much in sync. And that chemistry is um, a wonderful thing to be part of. You mentioned that everybody got on well together. As a, a young
0: television reporter going out to training and doing live crosses from training, one thing that struck me about Hawthorne was that not only were they a great team, but they were a great club. Yep. The atmosphere that used to exist in the rooms there, and we were always made to feel quite welcome... Yep. Bob Yeomans was the head trainer there was the sausage sizzle going on there was something about that club that made it stand apart from the other clubs in the league.
1: Most certainly and of course I guess you go back to the likes of Ron Cook who was yeah. president Phil Ryan obviously when we think about the addition of really special people like John Laritz when he came mm. to the organisation and John was just terrific for for all of us and his credit card used to come in handy when we uh, <laughs> <laughs> went away on overseas trips and he really looked after us. And when you think about, I guess, our our comments perhaps is not the right word, but being called the family club and how that was embraced over a long period of time, I think that made that fairly easy to buy into the culture and also to the standards that Alan Jean's always used to want us to obviously aspire to. And you're right about the sausage sizzle on a Tuesday and a Thursday night and you'd quite often go home and of course I'd have my ex-wife as it is now, she would have made a nice meal and of course I wasn't that hungry and you would have dined out on sausages and dim sims (laughs) and and chips. And then even when we had sunday morning training we used to have obviously the <coughs> pardon me the sunday morning breakfast so we'd obviously have that then of course in those days it was the old world of sport yeah. sunday viewing so we would go up to the players room and of course then there would be the old uh, days where the vfa would be in vogue and guys would go and watch the vfa teams play and of course then it would be the old bear cave down at corfield yeah. or nick bell myself a couple of times yeah. <laughs> so it would be uh, unique in that we did so many different things together going back to the social club or and we used to have a lot of, and lucky overseas trips as well because in those days there were the, the games in London, in Canada Toronto, there was games in Miami, so of course I think that again embraces the culture and the camaraderie and also too, a lot of us then were having children so children similar ages and it obviously helps if you're playing in grand finals and winning grand finals finals as well, but it was one of the best parts of my life, that 15 years of playing footy at Hawthorne and it's still to this day, we've got a reunion coming up in about six weeks time actually it's the 1978 1988 and 2008 Premiership Reunion, so it'll be a wonderful day and night and the next day because it's over one weekend and it's just great to get there and uh, see how everyone's going. I'll talk about some of the
0: on-field stuff in a moment, but uh, just mentioning those overseas trips, all right, spill the beans. Who used to get the votes <laughs> on the overseas trips? Who was best on ground most of the time?
1: Well, you always know that old adage though, Pete, what happens on an overseas yeah. trip stays on an overseas trip, but I always think Dipper bit. was pretty good, <laughs> Dermot was pretty good, even Jason Dunstall, think was pretty good. Yeah, I, I actually
0: saw uh, on a great documentary I think one of the Peter Dixon documentaries and and Rob was involved previously about some of the things that Hawthorne used to get up to filming stuff and I think Rob Dixon was instrumental in that and Dipper got his first taste of hosting <laughs> and
1: interviewing people and um, some of that stuff was quite extraordinary. Yeah, it is and uh, of course I guess the only thing we would say probably these days thank Christ there was no social media back in those days.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's a very good idea. Ezzie, when you've had such a great career on the field. It's obviously hard to pick one particular moment, but when, in your mind's eye, when you look back on your career, is there one particular moment, one particular game that you think of above all the others? Is it 89, that highly regarded grand final?
1: Yeah, that would come to mind fairly easily, I would have thought, Pete. But probably if you go back to that game in 89 in round six at uh, Princess Park, and we were almost 50 points down at half-time, Geelong were playing out of their skins, and... I can't quite remember what the end scoreline was, but it might have been like about 170 points it was about 160 or something like yes. that. You'd never ever see that in the way the game is played, obviously, today. So that uh, round six game certainly comes to mind. I think another game out at Waverley must have been about 1990. Jason ended up copping that really nasty, mm. obviously, skull fracture. and uh, Which
0: looked quite innocuous yeah. at the time.
1: And it's amazing how how things can seem quite mundane, if you like, but then of course they can have quite uh, huge ramifications. And Jason wasn't in a good way. I think Dermot had actually hurt his hip that day, and Chrissy Muir had retired after the nineteen eighty nine premiership. So we were sort of feeling our way a little bit, and um, injuries, and we we came out and beat Melbourne, who I think were pretty much hot on or red hot to win that day. And obviously the grand finals, you can't go past those. The prelim in 1987 with, obviously, Jimmy Steins going across the, the mark and Bucky kicking that goal after the siren or on the siren. That was unbelievable that day. Chris Mew got knocked out. And, of course, the stinking hot grand final the next week yeah. when, when Carlton beat us in, in 87. Carlton and us played out at Waverley and it was Yabby's 500th game and I'm pretty sure we only got up by maybe a point or two so there were just amazing games and because we were obviously fairly successful you felt like uh, some of the games were just huge in what the opposition wanted to do because everyone wanted our scalp and uh, but we always felt that we could put the foot down and and go when we needed to. It's a team
0: game and you had great success as a team, but what do the Norm Smith medals mean to you from an individual point of view? I guess it's cream on the cake in some ways, but to do that and to be one of the very few players who's been able to do it on multiple occasions must mean
1: a lot to you. It does, and it's something that you probably place more weight on once you've actually finished your career and once you sort of reflect on what has gone before you. I remember being pretty embarrassed after we lost to Essendon who were powerhouse in the 80s after the 1985 grand final, sat on the interchange, played poorly and I remember walking out of the MCG after a grand final and it's very, very lonely when you've lost. You obviously want to try and find a hole to to crawl into and not be seen until the following year and I just said to myself that that will never ever happen again in a final I'll never ever not be part of contributing somehow to hopefully the team winning and I guess if you can do something that inspires your teammates in a piece of play or or what you've done And that then becomes something that your teammates see. Hopefully then it becomes such a strong momentum shift in the game that then if we're playing all well enough, then we know we'll win the game more often than not. So 86, we're obviously hell-bent on making up for 84 and 85. We should never have lost 1984, of course, but we did. And then 88 was another interesting day because both those games I spent more time in the midfield than I did actually as playing in the back pocket mm. and uh, Alan came up with a tactic of putting players in certain areas against Carlton David Reese jones was my man that day and David had a great game in the second semi-final so when I reflect back now on those you just think to be able to do it on the biggest day possible. And hopefully it went some way towards helping the players that you've got around you win a premiership because that's what we want. And then, as you said, it's the icing on the cake if you get something individually. It was a remarkable career as a player. When we come
0: back on the other side of the break, we'll go to the next phase of your football life. In the coach's box, I'm swinging with Gary Ayres and delight to have Gary as my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life. For Tobin Brothers Funeral, celebrating lives, more coming up after the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donigan. And what a privilege it is to have Gary Ayres as my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life. As we were talking in the break now, just to recount a little story that you told me about that winning era for Hawthorne where you were just winning all the time.
1: Yeah, well, we had a pretty special run of years, I guess, over the glory years, as you put it, and I think even something like I played in 269 games, but I think 199 were those, uh, of those games were wins, and it's like about 70%. Anyway, we were playing in 1988, and Alan Joyce had taken over from Alan Jeans after his brain aneurysm, and we got beaten, I think, for about the second or third time in 1988, and we arrived at the training gym on the Monday at Glenferry, and Alan Joyce told us the story about how his young son, who was a mad, passionate Hawthorne supporter, had gone home that night disgusted that we'd been beaten by Richmond and ripped up all his footy cards, so so we sort of thought, well maybe Alan, you're just overstepping it just a little bit, like we don't lose too many games, but the point was obviously that no one at Hawthorne liked losing, of course.
0: No, and uh, you didn't do it very much, so you go from player into coaching, how did that all
1: evolve? it was very very quick i must admit had the opportunity at the end of 1993 to become captain and coach of frankston in the the vfa and i was almost packing my bags ready to go to start that appointment and then got a phone call from stephen wells who was obviously recruiting a manager at geelong and a wonderful person and um was wanting to know if I was interested in becoming Malcolm's assistant coach and I would coach the reserves. At Geelong. So I rang Alan Jeans as I used to do and uh, asked him his advice. And his advice was well, laddie, I think you might be better off coaching with Malcolm and seeing how it all goes and (laughs) do it for 12 months and who knows. So I had 12 months obviously coaching Geelong reserves. And of course, then Malcolm, who had got Geelong into three grand finals, decided he'd had enough. And by the age of 34, I was full time senior coach at Geelong always thankful for Ronnie Hovey who was one of the best footballing people person that you could ever meet and Greg Durham too who was CEO at that time and I'm coaching Gary Ablett Senior who's 33 years old, Barry Stoneham, Paul Couch, guys that we'd had such a unique rivalry with and against and of course here I am coaching my first side and you think you know a lot but you know very very little and you quickly wise up that this is An environment that your communication, your man management, your ability to obviously handle all the things, the scrutiny, the day to day pressures, and also to being someone who has to control an environment as a coach and a man manager whereas as a player you only have to control yourself Mm. and then what happens obviously with your training and your playing etc so I quickly wised up that this was going to be a pretty tough gig but again as I said before I enjoyed the challenge and it was unique we made the grand final in 1995 obviously against Carlton who had only lost uh, two games and they just blew us away that particular day and I felt terribly terribly sad bad because I felt that Geelong had been possibly in its best position to potentially win a premiership and there'd always been the talk about Geelong and the handbags and of course where we were as a team being out of Melbourne per se and just the fact that um, this was another grand final that unfortunately got away. I remember speaking to you that night at the Geelong Town Hall
0: when the players were about to be presented And it's a very difficult feeling, as you know, for um, anybody in a club after a grand final. For a coach, it must be probably times 20 or times 22. When you have to present a team after a losing grand final, do you have misgivings about that? Do you
1: have second thoughts about whether you actually deserve to go out there? You do. and. That's the first initial emotional sort of feeling because you think it shouldn't, but it comes down to that one afternoon of a couple of hours where you can be basically a hero or a villain, I guess. Mm. And Geelong, or we at the time, they had played in 89, 92, 94. There was supposed to be this feeling that Geelong couldn't challenge again because of where some players are at in their careers and you feel really 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 bad and I felt very bad for a long period of time after that because you think so many things and in the end I remember talking to Neil Danaher about five years later and it must have been the two thousand. Grand Final when they played Essendon, who'd only lost one game for the year. And Neil said to me, how did I feel? Because we'd been beaten by a really good side in Carlton. I said, I felt terrible. It took me a good couple of months to get over that. I felt responsible in my own mind and my own self. And he said, yeah, but Carlton were just too good. Hmm. And Neil was using the same philosophy, if you like, or analogy, because Essendon only lost one game in that year, yet they'd been good enough to come second. We never really say second means a lot, but maybe in the Olympics with a silver medal, as you would know, and still pretty good effort, Hmm. and um, we were thereabouts. But I did feel on the night it's hard to, how would you say, find something positive about the whole thing, but then you've got to look at it over the year and not just that two hours on the one day. One last
0: point with Geelong, and you're very well qualified to speak on this. We've often seen when we're in commentary boxes there the team may have a bad day, mm. and they didn't have too many at that ground, but they'd yep. always be applauded off the ground. Correct. And there would always be that sense that they're our boys, they can do no wrong. Yep. Do you reckon that sort of permeated the players at any stage, <laughs> and, and the fact that they they were regarded as these godlike figures in the town, and they couldn't do anything wrong, even if they were
1: poor? Yeah. That's an interesting one, Pete, because I never felt that the players at any stage how would I say, thought that or embraced that sort of feeling. And they just wanted to be successful in their own right. And the club wanted to be successful because no one wants to be runners-up all the time. Mm. And whether it's Collingwood in that sort of late 70s period or whether it's Geelong, and everyone wants to, as a player, as a coach, to be part of a winning premiership side. And it doesn't always happen that way, as we, we know. So, again, the supporters down there are... are terribly loyal and terribly parochial and they just love their boys and uh, they do pay their membership as we know and of course you would certainly take a uh, round of applause and you would booing or being spat on I guess but not that that ever happened at obviously Geelong anyway but I think that's the whole environment that we're in and we've got to understand that as you said the supporters love you whether you're good, bad or indifferent. Well you certainly found that with
0: another group of supporters (laughs) when you crossed the border and went over to Adelaide if you thought Geelong supporters were parochial you probably had your eyes open when you crossed the border.
1: Most definitely, and I never used to try and get too involved in reading the media or understanding it, but I'd talk to my mum who was living in the, in Warrigal, and, of course, she'd say, oh, did you see what they said about you this week, Gary? I'd go, well, Mum, I'm trying not to read it. Yeah, but so don't say anything. <laughs> and,
0: of course, but they love you whether you win, lose or draw. Yeah. Did you ever get close to snapping when you get that... Uh, that level of intensity and vitriol at some
1: stages. Yeah, I did unfortunately, Pete, and um, it happened uh, once actually against Geelong and uh, I'd been getting a fair bit of abuse all day and being told what I should be doing and what I shouldn't have been doing and actually Adelaide Crows were able to win in a very, very tight game and there was some people in the front row of the, just in front of the coach's box so they turned around and gave me a couple of gestures and uh, some kind words and of course I gave them the old, uh, I'll see you in the bar for two beers after the game and uh, Andy Dimitriou was on the phone asking what had gone on and um, anyway, long and short of it was that I got a suspended sentence slash fine of about five and a half hours. Well, of course, uh, we played Melbourne in a final at the MCG. It must have been about 2002, I think. And anyway, it was the old days where the coach's box was under the Great Southern Stand. And in those days, the security guards really didn't be as attentive as they are now. And, of course, anyway, I was walking down after we'd won the game and it had been flowed all night. And I just happened to be walking past an aisle and I heard this voice airs, you're nothing but a so-and-so dog. Well, of course, my response was quite emotional. I turned around and grabbed the, the chap by the, the the scruff of the neck slash throat and, um, of course, what did you say? And uh, he said nothing. And then my assistant coach, Mark Bicken, Pulled me away, and then the security guard came in. And another please explain on the Monday from Andrew Demetrio. And of course, he uh, uh, put the uh, suspended sentence uh, certainly in vogue. And of course, yeah, I had to pay five and a half thousand dollars. So, and again, my comeback to Andrew was that, but if someone calls you that. I probably did well not to actually land one on his beak because that was what I really felt like doing. But, of course, then bringing the game into disrepute and we have certainly currently seen with uh, the likes of Damien Hardwick and I think even words might have been mentioned to Chris God and... um Yeah, but you've just got to somehow control that emotion because it certainly doesn't look good if you're uh, getting involved with supporters. In your time in Adelaide,
0: did you always think that you were a Victorian coaching Adelaide? There's that perception that they do not tolerate outsiders. Did you ever feel that?
1: No, I didn't, Pete. Look, to be perfectly honest, my five years there, I was absolutely blown away when the club decided not to uh, extend my contract and really I could have coached the last nine games of that 2004 season so because... Very rarely does an outgoing coach win his last game of coaching. We won by six goals against um, the Western Bulldogs. So, And it was the week of the bye. So, of course, I was, and I knew something was going to go down anyway. And I just told them, look, if you don't think I'm the man for the job, be upfront and honest and tell me, we'll all move on. And then they said, well, look, we'd like you to see out your contract. I said, well, if you're thinking of having someone who is going to be able to be – the person you select, why not put him in the in the chair? Because that's the only way you ever know if you can actually coach or not. It's all right to be an outsider and think you could do a good job, but you've got to be in the chair to totally understand what it's actually like. And then I was blown away by the amount of cards and well wishes and support that I had from a lot of Crows supporters and people. So I didn't technically feel that perception about me I must admit and um, there were some wonderful people there and really when I guess, in in adversity in this particular stage, sometimes you get a lot of really good positive growth out of that. And uh, I must admit, I was blown away by, as I said, the amount of well wishes and positive support I had um, after I left. So we've turned the full circle. We've gone
0: from the boy from Warragul (laughs) to the player, the great player, to the coach, and now back to coaching again at Port Melbourne. We'll take our final break. When we come back, we'll see where the rest of the journey has taken Gary Ayres (laughs) on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donigan. Our final segment with Gary Ayres, the great champion, on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Anyone who's listened to this chat, anyone who's known you over the years knows what good company you are, an affable, easygoing fellow. But you've got the stare <laughs> when you need it, and you know that. Do you know when to pull it out as a coach? Do you know when to get that stare happening?
1: I hope so, Pete. And um, obviously, as you know, things evolve over a long period of time in any environment that you're in. And I remember talking to someone the other day, back in 1995, you were primarily the only coach. So, of course, then what you've got to be able to do, and I guess it's all about longevity, is trying to keep reinventing your message and how you do it. It's a bit like old Alan Jeans used to say, they're sausages, but you can fry them, you can boil them, you can carry them. He did actually confuse us one day when he said you can scramble them. So <laughs> I've never seen scrambled sausages. But I think more and more over the years, the effect of what you say, how you say it, I think has certainly become more in tune with what you know works and what you know doesn't work. So I think I can pull it out when it needs to be, but these days it's a lot less than what it possibly was before. So
0: you've got to keep that message fresh. How long do you think you'll keep trying to get the message fresh? How long do you see yourself sitting in the coach's box after 700 games of involvement now as a player and a coach?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I've always said that while I've got the passion and and the want, and these boys at Port, they just keep making my job so much easier but they keep stimulating and motivating me because they do so many things against the odds of what we have to play in as far as our environment. That Premiership win last year was just absolutely mind-blowing so while they keep me enthusiastic and motivate me I'll say I'll stay in as long as that feeling is there I am 57 and you think you don't want to overstay your welcome and I never want to be in a place any longer than I have to be from what I can hopefully help young people achieve which is what I achieved so at this stage definitely 2018 and I think I'll just review it at the end of the year. And the last question
0: you mentioned before if you wrote a book it would be called It Could Only Happen at Port (laughs) do you think you'll ever put pen to paper one day? Everyone else seems to be writing books.
1: Well who knows Pete there's a a scribe that you know in the VFL really terrific person by the name of Paul Amy Yes. and uh, Paul Amy's quite often dropped it well I'm ready if you're ready so who knows hopefully there's another chapter to write Pete this year.
0: It'd be a great read if you do um, it's been a pleasure to be involved with you over all of those years, from the sausage sizzles at Glenferry <laughs> Oval to all the way through to Port Melbourne and that brilliant year in 2011 and right to the present day. You've been a champion of the game, and it's been my pleasure and privilege to know you in that time and also to be able to have a chat with you today. Thanks for coming in.
1: Well, I appreciate it, Pete. You've been enormous in the VFL, AFL, obviously, and appreciate your uh, involvement with me personally. So thanks a lot, mate. All the best, mate.
0: Gary Ayres joining us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebration lives and we'll be back at the same time next week with another edition of the program right here on 1116 SEN, Melbourne's home of sport Sometimes needing new tyres can catch us by surprise. That's why tyre power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply so visit tyrepower.com.au or call thirteen twenty one ninety one.